Welcome to The Interlocutor with me, Anthony Anaxagoru. Today I'm joined by Leia Bormeo, a destructive director. Leia is a journalist, filmmaker and arts interventionist. With over a decade's experience in television, news at an editorial level, she bridges parallel art practice with documentaries. Described as redolent with mischief by the new internationalist, much of her work involves public and private space, social architectures, the environment and banging on about how journalism is an art. And can we all please stop being so representational all the time? Please, Leia. How are you? <laughs> Good morning. How are you? Yeah. Um, what do you mean by that? Can we all please stop being so representational all the time? Well, let's take journalism for instance, because that's, that's that's what you know. Um, that's that's the background I come from, and everybody's like, oh, well, what's the story? The who, what, the when, where, and the why, and everything is just quite literally told. The narratives are quite literally told in that basic story type structure whereas people don't really tend to think outside the box of how to tell stories so you know if there is going to be a news story everybody tries to put it into a, a news package you have to have a talking head you have to have somebody who kind of you know if, you, if you're going to do a character driven narrative you have to follow them around um and it's you know it, it's formulaic and and formalist mm. um you know people in the art world will go on about formalism and there's there's not that much kind of experimentation in in the line of concepts and what we're really concerned with um, when we actually make work is not necessarily just creating the work but also creating meaning behind that yeah. and it's actually finding new ways to communicate and it's not just kind of keeping stuck in, in, in one particular way so when I say everybody's just being so representational um, it's the, you know the, it's two-prong one is kind of here's a story here's how I'm gonna tell it and you know, it just comes out really bland, really vanilla, very much in, in a kind of factory setting kind of way. Um, no one's really hacking how to tell stories. Yeah. Um, and and how, those... do you think, how do you think that can kind of be, uh, I guess, catalyzed, the way in which we tell stories? Do you think we have to be more experimental, more uh, courageous in the way in which we do things? I think we just have to, you know, instill in young people and instill at sort of the educational and the foundational level that there isn't a right way to do something. You know, there is a way to do something, but that might not necessarily be the one way. Right. You know, there's there's one way of opening a doorknob, but then there's other there's a million other other ways of being able to do that. You do a lot of lecturing and teaching as well. Is this part yeah. of the, your kind of manifesto when you do teach is to try and inculcate and instill in young people this uh, tenacity to do things outside of the norm? Yeah, I mean, a lot of what I do in, in terms of curriculum as well is I don't really I, I have a set reading and I have a set list and, and most places generally try to stick you with a kind of set list and set reading it's like okay you can read that if you want to read that but this is what it is broken down mm. and you just break it down for them and if that interests them then fine you can go straight into Derrida you can go straight into Sartre you can go straight into whatever you want to go into um, but all that you're going to be doing basically within it within the educational structure and when you write an essay when you start quoting and you start making reference points. It's just repeating what somebody else had already said and repeating what somebody else has already done year in and year out. You're not coming up with anything new. And what I'm interested in is, is how people synthesize the information that they already have and then come up with things for themselves because that's what learning is about. That's what education is about. It's applying what you hear and what you experience and what you feel into something that's relevant for you. And the education system doesn't really have that. Something that I've kind of noticed as well over the years of teaching is that the education system really 
has a, a reservation towards any sense of real individuality it's this yeah. it's trying to just create this sense of conformity that a lot of the time is very stifling and it's the antithesis of what individuality actually stands for yeah i mean it's the antithesis for for anything any kind of critical thinking you yeah. know you you can't it always just strikes me as, as hilarious that university's teacher course called critical thinking yeah, right. it's like you should already have it if yeah. you're there you should already be capable of that why do you think that is i mean one of the things that i spoke about um in bradford last year was was this idea that are there courses should there be courses set up just for critical thinking you know especially with kind of philosophy and the humanities should there be something in there that is solely revolved around the idea of critical thinking it all ends up becoming uh the courses on how to think critically um it aren't necessarily supposed to be about or i don't think they should be about you know, having people conform to a certain line of this is how you think critically but it's it's a good way of sharing a reading list you know, the best way to do it is share a reading list, you read it, and then you start applying it to yourself. And you start applying it to your lives, you start applying it to your, your local communities. And then that's how you get progress, yeah. you know. It's, and I think that's how a lot of grass movements have kind of picked up That's traction. exactly it, yeah. that's exactly it. And that's, that's, you know, that's what, you know, kind of activism is about, is being able to be introduced to new and challenging ideas, not necessarily the ideas that you're going to be comfortable with. Mm. Um, and then kind of working that out for yeah. yourself, and that's how you grow. Activism is a bit of a dirty word nowadays, I, Isn't I find. It? Um, a lot of people... You include, think? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people... I know that a lot of people I respect that don't really want to be associated with with, with the term activism. Um, uh, Birkenstocks and, and patchouli, yeah. You know, and, and it's, you're trying to work out what is it that's kind of ruined what is essentially quite a prestigious title and an important title um and it's kind of now moved away and would you possibly think that maybe activism is a kind of a new zealotry yeah 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 i think it definitely has that's i think that's what's taking it over is that idea that the way that maybe pundits and journalists and the media have created uh, an emblem for what an activist is usually white middle class blonde dreadlock che yeah. Guevara t-shirt and it kind of takes <laughs> it takes away a lot of the the gravitas that would yeah. have been associated with a traditional well, activist it's also kind of like hashtag white privilege right, mm, right. and and it's that kind of i mean i, I always had a go at, at, a, at somebody i knew who's a who's an artist who just sort of says well you know i, I make work he's a he's a pretty woke artist i suppose mm. and you know he says he makes work that you know gives people a voice you know he does that voice of the voiceless and i just sort of step back going like you're like a mid-60s white guy who's six foot tall um there's no kind of actual way that you know you could be giving voice to the voiceless because yeah. you're part of the system that took that voice away from them right, right. It's that you know it's 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 not necessarily giving a voice to anybody it's just kind of I, I've got an issue with, 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 with particular artists in art that, that kind of just says they're giving a voice to somebody yeah. because a lot of the time, you know, that voice is already there. It's just it's never been given the chance to break out. Absolutely. This this segues very nicely into the next uh, section that I wanted to look at. The documentary that you're currently working on, film or documentary or film documentary? 
fuckumentary. Fuckumentary, right? <laughs> uh, the, the the cotton film, Dirty yeah. White Gold. Um, you're actually going over to uh, where are you going today? To, to well, do... there's a there's a irony of ironies. I'm going to Copenhagen for the Co- uh, Copenhagen Doc Fest, and there's a couple of projects that I've got that I'm going to shop around over right. there. Um, and this is one of them. And the 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 sort of thrust behind this is this this started some years back um, after sort of I left Sky News and and you know left the prisons as it were of hmm. of, of that institution. Murdoch. Yeah, I left. I left Murdoch. I mean, Murdoch trained me, and then like you know, just let me loose on the world. And like, oh, I, but I know all your secrets. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, they're quite short actually. But they, you know, the the whole sort of point behind this is is I'm just taking the fashion industry from seed through to the shop, you know, and then in that process, trying to find out why over three hundred thousand Indian farmers have committed suicide as a result of that now is that cultural is that systemic is that capitalism is you know what has caused all of these deaths um and what can we as consumers within the fashion industry or within of fashion um possibly do about that now it's it's a very you know you can think about it in a narrow focus um as a lot of people who are quite representational would um it's like oh we have to change the fashion industry we have to change you know we have to go for supply chain transparency and all that stuff and it's like yeah you could do that but actually ultimately what we're talking about here is we're not talking about globalization we're talking about capitalism we're talking about a system that can only exist off the basis of exploitation Mm. you know it can only succeed if somebody gets screwed and oftentimes people will lose their lives because of that mm. um and you know people just think oh well that's that's not there's no direct cause there's no direct reason and there's some people in india who actually even deny that sort of hap- that sort of thing happens um and you know that's i don't know what they're drinking and what kind of kool-aid they've got in their in their veins but you know they're they're in total and utter denial that um this sort of wanton desire for profit and to try to make yourself this this self-aggrandizing desire to make yourself richer and more wealthy um is a good thing you know it's not to say that people shouldn't do that it's just when you when you are doing that just think about who comes behind you yeah you know uh, it's, it's part of the i guess the audience will be westerners uh the people that are going to be watching it um yeah. and, and it's part of the idea the intention behind making these kind of films to, to kind of show people from an ethical level what is how their clothes are made and the consequences of primark and shops like that who the exploitative in all different ways i mean there is that uh but one of the things i don't want to do is that there's a documentary maker called adam curtis and he talks about something called odierism which is when you walk into a documentary or to a film or something you see something quite terrible and quite awful you you know you walk out and go oh dear Mm. and then you just go home and do not and do nothing um and that that happens a lot particularly within you know social movements uh within art um within particularly kind of you know um, socially progressive art socially engaged work uh people go in and go oh yeah well done fantastic yeah nice nicely done direct but nothing happens off Mm. the back of that so one of the things i'm trying to do with this particular film is not to actually have a marketable film not to have a shoppable film that will have any kind of commercial advantage or purpose but to break it down into eight to ten minute segments tell this you know tell the story 
in whatever part you happen to be interested. Are you interested in Monsanto and GM? Are you interested in, um, you know, just the fashion angle of it? Are you interested in the industrial angle of it? Are you interested in whatever angle? You can go in at any point in the story. So there's like there's eight sections. You can go in at any point, and then you can expand and jump off to any other point. at your choosing and at your leisure. You can put it all together and watch it all in one go, or you can just watch two or three. You know, it's just, it's being able to split the narrative into as much of, to turn it into a tool, mm. essentially. So before you go out shopping or before you're out in a round, and if you just want to sort of share a point with a friend, that you can just send it to them and do that. Don't, you know, try to get somebody to do a 70 to 90 minute buy-in for mm. a film. And then you can sit in there, and at the end of a you know at the end of a thing, mm. um, congratulate the director and eat your popcorn. It's mm. it's not going to be one of those films. It's going to be one that's more um, agile or multi-dimensional, I guess. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's similar to the idea that it reminds me of like a book of essays that you get, and it has obviously different different sections in a book. You go through the contents page, and you just want to read about this, or you just want to read about yeah. that. So it, it's not linear. In, in that sense like, just to kind of go back on this idea of odierism um, that Adam Curtis coined I really I've always wondered do, do we suffer from a kind of fatigue do, do we become inured by seeing uh, the same image constantly being perpetuated through be it documentaries or be it through photojournalism and is there something quite detrimental with seeing the same thing do we become immune um, mm. to to action because of the fact that it's been it's so watered down and so common. You definitely grow a thicker skin to things. Things become less shocking, and at the sort of the proliferation of information and the speed and the rate at which you know it can get to us and we can access it, um, and the fact that we're constantly seeing you know either images of hyperviolence or sex or various things, and we can just kind of either filter it or take it, depending on what you know, what your echo chamber is on social media, or even if you don't even bother engaging with social media, mm. whatever your echo chamber happens to be, um, yeah, you you can be numbed to it. And, you know, in terms of numbing yourself to, to images and visions, I mean, I, you know, I spent the majority, the, the entirety of my 20s um, working within, you know, mainstream news, Sky News, Channel 4, you know, the Associated Press. And every day, you know, you would be seeing... Um, car bombs here, somebody being assassinated there, you know, all sorts of different things, and you just kind of shrug your shoulders and move on. Mm. Um, that that psychologically does you in. Yeah. yeah. I, I remember listening to Gary Young uh, speak once, and he, he was saying that in, within journalism is the old maxim that says that people don't want to hear the story about the dog biting the man. They want to hear the story about the man biting the dog. That's it. Um, and, and I guess that level of sensationalism, that absurdity, has been something that we're seeing a lot more of now. Um, I think because of the amount of media outlets have doubled mm. since the internet and things like this. Uh, how 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 do you feel that impacts the way in which we receive uh, and retain and process information? Well, it's also content creation, right? Mm. It's it's it, you know it's no longer information; it's just content. Um, and you know those are two separate things. You're not picking up something that's actually useful. If it's information, it's something you know you, you'd think it's slightly useful. Um, but even going back before the internet, the you know Reuters' business tagline and schedule is the business of information. So they were quite naked and quite honest about what they're doing. You know they sell you this information. Um, so it's still a commodity. What you're what you're ultimately still buying into is you're buying into the commodification of things that is meant to help you out. Mm. 
um, as opposed to leaving it as a kind of free and open um, way of learning things. Um, you know, when when you think about the kind of things that we're kind of exposed to and we, we think um, is sold to us or somebody has curated for us more, more accurately as essential knowledge, um, and you actually think about, you know, how, whether or not you can live without that, um, you know, that, that gives you pause for thought, um, as to how useful a lot of that information is. I, you know, there's, there's, you know, some of it's fun, some of it's all right, but, um, we have to learn how to filter yeah. now. And, and, and that learning, this is the thing that interests me a lot is the, is the learning to filter where, how and where would we learn that? Because if obviously there's a lot of people out there who consume information or content through the internet whatever outlet they decide to choose but they haven't got the resources and the tools and just the intellectual faculty to be able to decipher what it is that's conjecture what it is that's you know completely fictitious to the truth and i think that you know i i'm, I'm there's another adam curtis documentary that i watched maybe a year or two ago mm. that spoke about this this idea of misinformation yeah and in, and now we've got the post fact age and, and all the other and, stuff that comes. Yeah, I was, I was just waiting for 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 the for the use of the word fake news to come. Fake in. news, the, yeah, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's like you know, hello buzzword, <laughs> yeah. um, hashtag buzzword. But no, but the thing is with this, all right? Because the other day somebody was showing me um, there's this there's a company mm. in the states, and then there must be more than one of them um, that takes a news story. Let's say like the you know um, government minister A gets sacked. So on the right end of politics, on the right wing end of politics, it's like government minister A gets sacked. Oh my God, how, you know, what an outrage. And then same company, same photograph, same journalist writes another story for the left wing angle of, 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 of the social media world and says government minister A gets sacked, how that's great for us. You know, so they take two sides of the same coin of one event, person gets sacked, and then talk about how either outraged you should be that that person's gone, or how happy you should be mm. that that person's gone. It's written by the same person, written for and distributed by the same company under a different website. Mm. Um, you know, and we have to come to grips with the fact that we are. It's not just a new thing. We're not just now being manipulated. We've been manipulated like this since time immemorial. Since you know, we've been. You know, we've been we've been told about events since people were were trying to sort of you know give us various callers and town criers. People have always used PR, uh, but this is just now ramped up to 2.0, ramped up to 11 uh, when it comes to it. How do you think it impacts on a racial, um, on 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 if we look at it through the optics of race? How do you feel that it has impacted the way in which we view other people? Um, non-Europeans, uh, people, refugees, or people such as the mm. farmers in India, um, and the way this information is distilled. How do you think that then it informs the general population in the West with regards to how they see others? Well, that depends on where you are. Mm. I mean, if you are, let's say, in, in a Western audience, the UK or the US or anything like that, and, and the the dominant um, race, as it were, would be the white male, mm. as it were, hashtag patriarchy. Mm. Um, you know, that will be very different to if you were based in Beijing and you were dealing with people, you know, where in that case, the other would be the white guy. 
Um, so it depends on who your other is. And how would they perceive? I mean, this is what, obviously we're constantly looking at things through the lens of, of the white male in the West. But if you were to go to places like India, how do they perceive the white male, the other? How is, is there? How do they denote the other person? Or is is it just the same way as they're just the white guy? Or is there some kind of hierarchy? Well, there's a guy in the film called Vijay Jawandia, uh, you know, who's who's just. Uh, He's a character, definitely a character, and and he said when, you know, partition happened, India gained freedom or whatever it is, and then sort of Pakistan and Bangladesh and all of that happened back in the forties. Um, the white colonialists left, but then the brown colonialists moved in. Mm. So the same systems are still in effect, the same exploitations are still in effect. It's just that now, the person with the whip in their hand looks like you. Yeah. And I guess there's a lot of historians uh, that that argue that you know they never really left, they just left physically. But the hallmark and, and the ideologies yeah. that they've cemented are still prevalent throughout the, the global structures, south. The structures are still there. The railways are still broken, yeah. um, yeah. you know, and and in, in literally and figuratively, um, and the bureaucracy is still left. You know, the mentalities are still is still there. Uh, you know, India is one of the few places in the world where I've been where there's specifically a guy hired to stamp a receipt before you leave a shop you cannot leave the shop unless they see the stamp on the receipt you yeah. know it's it, it, there's there's a there, there are various tiers of 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 that old colonial mentality that is there's still in in effect today. and is there still that aspiration to want to uh, appear westernized to want to appear lighter and things like this or is you've seen like... bollywood right yeah yeah and it, it's like i mean it's you know and and I, i'll see this in africa i'll see this in in in, in south asia i'll see this in in southeast asia whitening soap mm. you know bleach for your skin uh, how how is that a thing why is that a thing yeah. you know and and a lot of people will you know well sort of so i'm from the philippines it's like most of my countrymen would find themselves standing in the shade on a hot day and go like why the heck are they you know you know mad dogs and englishmen out in the midday sun kind yeah. of thing it's you know why are you standing in the sun no stay here hmm. i mean and, and there's obviously different schools of thought some people will obviously associate the, the lighting of the skin or whiteness with aristocracy people who have to who don't work who don't work exactly right and other people obviously put it down to white supremacy um, and globalization and the fact that we're constantly shown images of white blonde-haired people who don't look who actually make up nine percent of the world so if you think that nine percent of the world is being marketed as what, the, what is emblematic of, of, of the human archetype then it's going to create a lot of psychological problems do you kind of see which one do you see more of? Do you think it's more of the latter or the former? Or, or is it, you know, if you want to turn everything into a Benetton ad, um, is that in in its own way kind of condescending? Right. Right? It's like kind of, oh, we're going to be totally and fully inclusive because mm. we feel we have to make a statement about it. You know, the fact that you, you still feel that you have to do that um, is also kind of, you know, we haven't quite hit the levels of equality when we're still yeah. having to make conscious decisions to be inclusive. You just should be inclusive. That's I, yeah, I spoke with Nikesh, Nikesh Shukla, uh, last, last month on, on the podcast, and, and we spoke about diversity uh, and inclusion. And I remember we, you know, we, we were kind of touching on this subject that a lot of the time this whole diversity debate seems to be coming from people in very privileged positions. So what you were saying oh, earlier, yeah. you know, the idea that we're now ready to have the discussion and we're going to let you in, again, the dominant group, are going to let you in, depending on 
you know, it's yeah. you're, you're at our whim. But even if you think about things like diversity and immigration and migration and, and things like uh, refugee statuses, right? So um, bringing it back to kind of like family history, that's the only thing I really know, is like back in the 80s, there was a, a dictator in the Philippines called Ferdinand Marcos. Um, for one reason or another, my family had to split itself in half, left my brother and two sisters um, in the Philippines. My father and my mother and I went to America, sought refugee status, stayed there. That's where I grew up, right? Now, I know that this case, and also in many other cases, the only people who could really leave a country that involves either war or dictatorship or anything are those who had the financial agency and the connections to get out. Mm -hmm. Who were those? Generally the elite. So when you're getting somebody who's driving a minicab who's a refugee from somewhere, somebody who's making your tea run um, in your office for you, whatever it is, and they're a refugee from somewhere, you're probably looking at somebody who has an advanced degree, who was probably a doctor, who was, you know, who was one of the members of the social elite back where they came from, but is now cleaning your toilets. Mm. So, again, the only people who could get out or who can still get out of these places are those who have a little bit of English, a little bit of connection, a little bit of money, some form of agency and access to that. Um, that's not, you know, 100% the case, but it's a pretty strong case. Mm. What do you, as, as somebody who's quite seasoned in documentary making... Call uh, me old. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, what do you see as one of the... the I, you spoke about this at the University of the Arts as well when, when we uh, met last time. What do you see as the, as the function, the functionality of the documentary? It's the storytelling. You know, and and you know, for for you and for po for poetry, it's storytelling. It's just another way to tell a story, and that's the only way we can really hear about everybody else. Is if somebody comes in and just goes, "What do you do for a living?" I tell stories. Mm. Um, you know, some a lot of times these days people ask me, so you know, what do you make, and you know, what do you do, and I sort of, the answer will be I tell stories, because that's the only thing I can. I don't have a marketable skill. That's the only skill I have. Yeah. How do you get around the inertia? How do you get around the the fatigue that we that we spoke about the the odiness? How do how do you get how do you get around that? Um, is that can we? Is it possible for an artist to be able to to navigate that indifference? You know, people just watching it, becoming moved for about five minutes, and then going getting a McDonald's and a pint afterwards. Well, what turned on? What, what turned you on about it? Why did you get? You know, why I did think, you get excited? I think with me, it was there was something already within and the documentary or a film would would exacerbate or catalyze or inspire or stimulate in mm. some way but there had to be a, an agent already within yeah you know it's like if if i know people that aren't that politically minded or aware of what's going on in the world and they watch a documentary and they'll leave with hmm that was nice fuck that world what can you do mm. um but then there's other people obviously have that adds to yeah. their yeah, I mean, you you need a gateway, mm. right? And one of the reasons why I think other people just don't go to things like demonstrations, well, not not only because it's it's you know, the problematic in their own way as a structure, um, but it's because they don't think that they they will know anybody there. You know, why would you want to go to a party? Because you think you'll know people there, or you want to meet people there. So that's you know, you you need that gateway. What are your thoughts on demonstrations? Are they productive? Counterproductive? Are they just the the politic thing to say is that we all need a, a level of collegiality. Mm. Um, I think they're very useful and I think they're very good. A lot of old school people will 
um, rain it down on me for, for essentially slagging them off for a point because a lot of the time, you know, demonstrations are there and they're very useful to support and, and uphold things and uphold it's but it's like they're like going to church. You know, you're going to go there and you're going to hear and you're going to see things and see people that agree with you. You're not going to deal with any challenges beyond that of a policeman or beyond that of, of the state and the structure or beyond that of what you would expect to see. Mm. Um, and, you know, they there's a predictable pattern. There's an A to B. There's, there's, there's you know, it's, it's there and it's useful. But that one thing is not what is going to change. Do you think everything. it's a kind of a... A traditional thing you know like a lot of people who go demonstrations now went with their parents in the 70s and the yeah. 60s and things like that i speak to uh i gave a talk at a college to a few weeks ago and i asked there was like 180 kids in there or kids young people and i asked them you know, uh who, who's been to demonstration before and i think about five of them put their hand up out of that whole thing and when i asked the reasons why one girl turned around and, and remarked that you know what's the point we don't have any power uh, and I think that within mm. the idea of feeling powerless, yeah. it reduces you down to this quite impotent being where it's like, what's the point in anything? You know, you might as well yeah. just change your Facebook profile picture and hope for the best. Yeah, I mean, going to a demonstration for people is a big thing for them. It's just turning up to like, wow, I'm taking a stand. I'm putting, I'm putting my neck on the line. So you can't negate that. For, for certain people and for other people like people like you or me just turning up to a demo is like all right yeah turn up to a demo no biggie but for some people it's a huge leap and that is that is a great and very useful thing to have and that's why when i say you know we need a collegiality it's a good gateway for people to start thinking and engaging mm, mobilizing um, centralizing yeah yeah and then hopefully over there they'll start seeing stimuli that sparks them to go home and go oh who is that what is that I want to hear more about this. What do you mean by intersectionality? But and yeah. then, you know, all of these jokes that people are getting. I want to know what that means. Yeah. And so that's what gets you to look in. You see, you know, you start going down some kind of like weird Google hole, right? Yeah. Um, and that is useful. That is really good. But you need to be able to take that above and beyond just that. You know, because I think the the state and power structures rely on us getting enraged enough to turn up to a demonstration, enraged enough to sign a petition, enraged enough to kind of maybe even make a phone call or write a letter to your MP, but not really go as active citizens um, and take their citizenship, like to actively take their citizenship and change things. Absolutely. Because one of the things, or change things for us, because one of the things that's, that's happened recently is there's been a lot of change. You know, we're getting in the Philippines, you've got Duterte in America, you've got Trump. In the UK, you've got Brexit. And, and in most of Europe, you're getting this sort of perceived rise of the far right, or at least the emboldenment of the far right. Um, you know, change is happening. It's just not the kind of change that we want. Yes, regressive. Exactly. So it's, it's, you know, it's not the change that we, within our kind of echo chamber, want. So how do we, and actually what we want, and, and it's another thing that Adam Curtis comes up with, or, or an argument he posits, is that what we're actually doing is we just want things to stay the same. So when you have a slogan like, save the NHS, we don't want to change it. We just want things to stay the same. Is that people within the left? Obviously, it's talking about more socialist and more progressive groups of people. Yeah, I, I, I don't like using the word progressive because it's not really about progressing. Yeah. You know? It's it's maintaining. just it's just make it's just making sure we don't fuck it up. Mm. <laughs> it's like yeah, that, yeah. that's what we're doing. Yeah. It's just that we're we're of we're of the sort of political wheelhouse that just says don't fuck it up. You know we've got it okay. It's not great. It's not brilliant. Just don't make it any worse. Oh God, you've made it worse. Right. Yeah. Um, 
the, I, I want to just the, the pick up as you said you know, it made a really interesting analogy the idea of church and the idea of a demonstration being very similar to church and I, I, I did a, a poem at the, the Trump demonstration the anti-Trump demonstration a few weeks ago at Parliament Square um, and it was really interesting to kind of see that element of uh, of affirmation of just having yeah. things reaffirmed yeah. uh, and just having people who essentially do feel anxious and unsure about the future congregating in one space yeah. and oh wow there's more people that feel and think like me and it, it did feel a bit like a pantomime in, in the mm -hmm. sense of especially when you're on a stage and you're and it's there's certain elements of a poem that people will respond to emphatically and you're just like okay cool this is actually like you're a bit I, like jesse jackson up there <laughs> yeah that's what it kind of and you can see it's different from a traditional poetry night where you read a poem and people you know, scratch their chin and someone will, <laughs> someone will click <laughs> something like this one uh so i i really found that quite interesting the idea of of, of reaffirmation and just going there to hear people tell you what you already believe yeah um it's like getting a massage from your partner, right? right yeah. It's like, you know, it's like you, you, you know that something's in pain and somebody is there to help soothe it. Mm. Um, and again, you cannot negate the value in that, the psychological and the mass psychological value in something like that. But you also have to think of other ways forward and, yeah. and beyond and ahead. That, uh, Do they that. change anything? Do what? Demonstrations yeah. change everything. I Do think... they change policy? A, a, a politician's... Do they feel pressured by seeing mass groups of people outside on a case-by-case case basis yeah you know it's a mirror i mean if we don't do that if people don't do that people just decide to stay home because they think it's, it's pointless you know who knows what you know the evil baddies can think that they can get away with i mean they think they can get away with it already by the fact that you're already on the streets and you're protesting what else do you think they can get away with if you aren't mm. you know and it's like you you need to you need to be on those uh, you need to be out there for that. Um, I know you're quite a big uh, spokesperson on on climate change as well. And, mm. um, that's one of the documentaries that you are you are you you finished it or you? We're still working still on it. I mean, we're, we're right. I think I don't know if I'm allowed to do this now, but it's just a few days ahead of the announcement. But we're uh, launching the first sort of workshops for um, something called Climate Symphony right. um, at the Two Degrees Festival in uh, at, at Arts Admin in London, and then we're taking it up to Newcastle as well. Um, but what that is, it's, you know, like, it's called data sonification is the process. And what we're doing is we're taking hardcore, very hard sort of climate change data, um, graphs and charts and stuff, and then trying to take and sculpt narratives and pull stories out of that um, and turn those stories, like, you know, assign instruments to the stories and then turn those stories into a four-part symphony. And we're doing that, turning it on, on its head a little bit by opening up to the public before we then showcase the piece instead of creating the piece and then showcasing it to the public the public so we get data scientists journalists musicians and all this doing that work with us um, and then we're going to showcase that together right. so the stories are going to be stories that people actually want to tell as opposed to the stories that I've determined or somebody else has determined and what the stories that should be around. told what are they can they be anything Anything down to air quality around sort of, you know, in, in East London, over to uh, the sound of peat bogs, to tsunami, mm. to coral reefs, to, you know, land erosion. Are you going to have experts or is it just going to be people like 
people talking. Who's the expert? Exactly. I mean, this is the thing. It's like, you know, just because you've got a bunch of letters after your name, yeah, that you're you're a kind of expert, but then if you've been working with wood all of your life, that doesn't make you any less of an expert. For sure. You know? So, you know, people have different levels of expertise and in different parts. You have it through practice and you have it through study. And some people have it through a bit of both. And others just have it through a deep interest mm -hmm. and a deep sort of fetish for it. So uh, everybody is an expert in something. Do you still see sense. climate change as being kind of on uh, a peripheral agenda, being on the periphery? Or do, or do you see it something as over the last maybe year or two has made its way into like center, more mainstream discourse? I think there's a fatigue there. Um, there's there's even the, you know, the, the International Broadcasting Trust, the IBT, has got this thing about um, how broadcasters can... Um, better address climate change because again that representational means of, of telling stories the old hat way of doing it the formal way of doing it isn't reaching out to people you know or it's only reaching out to people who don't need convincing but what you really need to do is actually challenge those who and not aggressively challenge them but just challenge them um, who does who are skeptical about it and who don't necessarily won't necessarily agree with you um, and it needs to come to them in a different way is, so. is that is that debate happening do we are, are we seeing the people that advocates for climate change and the people that I mean advocates activist groups and various sort of either formal or informal would like to say that it is but it's again within their own echo chamber it's not enough yeah, yeah, yeah it is happening but if, if I were to go to Tupelo Mississippi mm. have a discussion there no one's gonna you know yeah, or with the aforementioned Trump. Yeah. And have a discussion with him about it, and he'll just say something. Oh, he'll just shut it down. Pony. I mean, he's he's a, he's a little bit more honest about it in that sense. <laughs> he'll just he'll just you know he'll just shut down the EPA. He'll just say uh, wrong. <laughs> <laughs> he'll just say fake. Yeah. Sad. <laughs> Sad. Um, this so-called planet. It's yeah, flat. It's, it's, I mean, it, that that is something that I've I've realised as well. I think it has moved closer into dominating a much more mainstream narrative and, and a lot yeah. more people are becoming aware of it and they're, they're thinking about oh wow you know london is actually a very polluted city and yeah. yeah and you know you had sadiq khan's talking about the air being toxic and, and all these kind of things which i think is definitely helping move it forward but like you say unless you have that debate with the people that are for and the people that are against it's very difficult you know, that it just became very yeah. circuitous and you have this echo chamber that just keeps going round. And this is the thing, we've already hit the, the point of no return, right? We've gone past the 400 parts per million. I mean, that's it. We're screwed. Mm. We've, we've, you know, we've opened the oven and we've stuck our heads in it. And it's only just a matter of time. The only thing we're doing now is just kind of trying to delay everything. Um, ooh, fatalistic. You know, is there any point? Yeah, there is. Because you're going to have children, you're going to have grandchildren. Everything. There, there is. And you have people you love. That are being directly affected by this, you know, you're right getting right now. Yeah, this right isn't now. something that is going to happen in right 50 now. The years, fact yeah. that your boy's got, you know, a bit of a wheeze and a bit of a cough, that's probably down mm. to climate change. Right. You know, the fact that you haven't got enough food to eat or enough of a particular food to eat or enough nutrients in your diet is also down to climate change. And so it's being able to actually say um, straight up to people that a lot of the things that directly affect them, directly concern them, have one or two steps away in terms of if you make those connections one or two, ste two steps of connection to climate change yeah. you know even that even down to the, the, the fact that you're now taking the bus instead of driving a car you know and or you, you can afford to or what you can afford what what kind of jobs are available to you out on the market 
when you haven't got a job and you're trying to find one. Mm. That's all down to, I mean, there are, there are a few things that you know, things can be put down to, but climate change is definitely one of them. How do you feel it impacts people in the global south? Do you think, I mean, well, some people won't have places to live in about, yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, if you're living in one of those atolls, that's it, you're gone. Yeah. You know, the ones who will survive are the ones who have houses on sticks. Um, you know, we, we are seeing climate refugees and they, and, and those climate refugees will increase. You know, when we were talking about back in the seventies, George Harrison did a concert for floods in Bangladesh. Uh, climate change was happening then. Uh, when we're talking about what happened in the tsunami and how many people ended up dying through to that, you know, coral reefs and the taking of coral reefs and various things that contributes to climate change. All these things sort of do. I mean, yes, okay, the earth is going to crack, it's going to have earthquakes, that, but our defenses, our natural defenses, um, possibly, or the, the taking of our natural defenses, possibly contributed to more deaths than probably than, you know, could have been spared, as yeah. it were. Um, so yeah, I mean, this is you know, it's it's gonna get worse. And you know, when you talk about global warming, um, it's not just warmer weathers and warmer summers. It's gonna be colder winters. Mm. Yeah, you know. and I think that unless people really start to take it as seriously as what they do other issues, then because that's what I feel is lacking. It, there's the seriousness. It, it feels very distant. It feels oh, a lot of people that I talk to about climate change. Oh, 50, 60 years, I won't even be here. Or in 50, 60 years and that. But it's it's actually quite selfish. Which again, you know, you could actually put down to the how we've been taught to just concern ourselves about the very immediate things um, mm -hmm. and about us in our present state as opposed to thinking ahead for future yeah. generations i mean let me tell you a story i mean i you know recently came back from trinidad and uh, one of the one of the guys i was talking to out there said you know he's a you know born died in the wool trini and he just said you know when we used to go surfing out there it was, it was totally cool growing up no 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 you know no sharks nothing like that i you know but the reason i gave up surfing was a couple of years ago you know hanging out in the water it was technically a little bit shallow too shallow for a shark a little bit too you know mm. not too nice for them you'd never see them there um got into a wave suddenly saw this thing beneath him that was adult not a kitty adult shark didn't look very nice and he just you know his heart just went oh my god straight into his mouth and out and he just went straight back you know back on shore and never got back in the water since mm. Um, the fact that the sharks now feel comfortable about going that close, again, change in water temperatures, change in wherever else is going. So that you know, and now that part is a kind of a no-go area for mm. for surfers. Even the sharks have become emboldened by. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean that's you know, but when when it comes to kind of immediate and direct things, I mean that's pretty immediate. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's for like sure. some guy coming over, you know, with big sharky teeth, going hi. Yeah, I do, right. It's like buffet. Yeah. I mean, yeah, hopefully, we can only hope that things will start to progress, but um, all people become more mindful of um, of these issues, and like I say, try and see it in the same way as what they would other things. I think that's the only way forward. But I think there it's small footsteps. It is happening. Yeah, and I mean that selfishness can also be applied towards something like that, mm -hmm. right? That selfishness can actually be a good thing to to help galvanize people towards more of a social conscience. Yeah. It's, you know, what's in it for me? Oh, that. Yeah. Whoa, that's real. Yeah. Um, I know you have to catch a, a plane. Irony so, of ironies. Irony of ironies, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so it's all about climate change, jump on a plane. Um, and I know, right? <laughs> Sleazy so, jet. <laughs> um, 
we'll wrap it up there um where can people uh, find more about your find out more about your work and about what you do twitter website well i mean i'm at monstrous m-o-n-s-t-r-i-s on twitter but i mean online on the web uh, i should learn to do this properly but update the website it's disobedientfilms.com and, um, and you've got films up there we've it? got films up there we've got projects up there uh, our business partner Catherine Rounds just come back from America doing a shootout there um, and you know there's you know we, we kind of we keep ourselves busy so um, so it was as I go she comes in and as she goes I come in it's it's um, we keep we keep that ticking along quite nicely Fantastic. good okay Leah thank you very much for talking to me today Oh, cheers, man.